Well, good morning. Well, there was a little bird flying south for the winter. And then as he flew, he ran into a, a very large storm. And uh, it got so cold that the little bird began to freeze. And it eventually did. And uh, crash landed into a large field. And while it was lying there, waiting to die, a cow came by, doing what cows do, and soon dropped some manure on him, burying him alive. And while he found this to be quite appalling, thinking that what a disgusting way to die, he soon began to realize that the manure which covered him was quickly warming his little body. He was thawing out, and in no time at all, he was warm. He was happy to be alive, and soon he began to sing for joy. Till a passing cat came by and discovered the little bird <laughs> under the pile of manure and promptly dug him out and ate him. Yeah, I realize... <laughs> I ran this past my wife before I started, and I knew that if anybody was going to be upset, it would be her, and she made the same noise you did. <laughs> and I still stuck with it. That shows a lack of wisdom, I would say. Actually, this didn't really happen, Karen. It was a fable. <laughs> Fables are little stories intended to send a message or to give a meaning, something for us to learn. And here's some of the lessons that we can draw from that. First of all, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. <laughs> Secondly, not everyone who digs you out of a pile of manure is your friend. And finally, when you're in manure, it might be best for you to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> now maybe you can relate to this little bird this morning. And as I've traveled among you uh, this year, people from, you know, I write this and I never feel this way. I get up here and I look at your faces and you make me do this. <laughs> I feel your pain. I sat with you. I watched your tears through my own. For some of you, you might be thinking, you know what? This is way more than I can take. I've had enough. You've had your share of excruciating moments. I see it. I feel it. And I appreciate how you would arrive at that conclusion. And as I listen to you and observe your aches and your grief, my heart breaks for you. Like the little bird, you may feel like a ton of nasty circumstances have dropped on you, burying you under its enormous weight 
And these not, may not have been things that you brought about by your own mistakes, your own missteps in life, your own carelessness. Certainly they were not things you were hoping for, but they happened and they're painful. They cause you anguish and anxiety. Caused many of you perhaps to reel, become frustrated, beaten down and embittered, perhaps even depressed by them. Now this morning, if you are feeling at your breaking point, you may be wondering, how can I handle another difficult circumstance? And yet with few options that we have to choose from, you intuitively know that you must plow forward, don't you? You've been taught that God is with you through it all. As you read those words on the page, you really do believe them. They're difficult, difficult, because if you were to be honest, there have been times when you struggle to sense the presence of God in the midst of them. And so you ask, how can a Christian, a genuine follower of Jesus, cope with it all? What should our response be to such times that are tough and troubling? Well, if you were to ask the culture, they have a few answers for you, and they're eager to give you uh, some clues as to how you can deal with it. Uh, Some will tell you, simply ignore it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. Divorce care, we hear that tune a whole lot. When people are going through struggles, well-meaning folks say to them, hey, just move on. Pretend it doesn't exist. There's another voice out there that says, well, find a way to make the pain go away. Perhaps you need a party. Or find an activity that makes you feel better. And here's the message. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to feel better. So do whatever is necessary to find the happiness to which you are entitled. This morning, I want us to look at another voice, however, a voice the Christian needs to hear at a time like this. It is the wise counsel of God when it comes to hard times. Where do we find it? The beautiful part about what God has done for us is he has brought us into this world, but he's not left us on our own. He gives guidance and perspective from his wonderful word. In particular, the book of James is full of practical teaching for Christian living. And in the passage before us this morning, we are taught how we are to approach what the Bible calls trials and testings we will have to inevitably endure. In a straightforward and direct way, God pens or God guides the pen of James to challenge our thinking regarding these trials that we will face. And so I invite you now to stand with me for the reading of God's word. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the ESV. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray. Father, I know all too well that left to myself, the words which leave my lips are feeble. My feet are but clay. But your words, Father, are mighty, powerful, and sharp. And so by the power of your spirit this morning, will you help us all to hear what you have to say to us this morning, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that James would have us do in response to the heart-wrenching trials of life, we find right there in verse 1, he says to adopt a proper perspective. His words are, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now there's some advice for you. I'm picturing these brothers and sisters hearing James as they are suffering all kinds of affliction. And he says, I want you to be joyful. They're saying, you're joking. Have joy at a time like this. Do you know what I'm going through? Do you know the pain that is uh, just engulfing me at this very moment? You expect me to be happy and excited about having to experience the excruciating pain of these trials. Well, actually, that's not what James said at all. Rather, he said for them to count or to consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, Think about your trial from a position of joy. And the word that James used for joy is not the word for happiness in this case. James is not suggesting that the difficult trials that buffet us should make us smile, make us laugh, make us clap, and say how wonderful they are that they have appeared on our radar. In fact, when he says all joy, he's referring rather to a state of being, not an emotion. In other words, he's talking about the type of joy that one should display. I like the NIV here, where it's translated pure joy. It's the kind or the quality of joy. And so if we are to hear James correctly, the joy he's describing should be understood as a settled contentment in every situation. And when James commands us to count it all joy, he is not addressing how we feel, but rather how we think in regard to the trials that we are facing. Now, if we are drawn into how we feel about the trial, there's a problem that uh, might soon creep up on us. We could get stuck because it's possible for us to engage in an extended focus on ourselves and what's happening to us and all the pain that we are feeling 
And over time, that could lead us to a woe-is-me attitude filled with self-pity and self-focus, which, if left unchecked, ends up enticing us to question God's goodness, his mercy, and his love. When that happens, we are on the precipice or right on the edge of what could result in spiritual shipwreck. Now hear me. There is no doubt a place for sorrow, for grieving, for pain during the challenges that these trials place upon us. It's legitimate. That is one reason why here at Grace Church we provide a lament service. We provide the longest night service, which took place uh, not so long ago. We have support groups like grief share and divorce care. We look to offer folks who are anguishing through the weight of their trials an outlet or a mechanism by which they can bring those agonizing sorrows to God and lay them at his feet. In other words, they are given a space that helps us to move from being held captive by the grief and the pain that accompanies it to being set free. And that is appropriate. And so from that perspective, trials do not feel good. And I wonder if that's what James has in mind here. It's not that he's undoing the fact that we feel things. He's saying, but what I want you to do is to think about all those things a bit differently than perhaps you have. How should we think about these trials? He wants us to embrace perspective that perceives our trying circumstances with a settled contentment in our sovereign God. It's, as one commentator says, an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, thankful trust in God. Deep, steady, thankful trust in God. But there is more to think about here. Trials are inevitable for everyone. James writes, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, he doesn't say if, obviously. He says when. We are all facing trials right now, and we always will this side of heaven. Now, think of it. When you were born, you faced trials that you may not even have been aware of, but they were there. Uh, I can think of the trials my kids presented to me, but uh, they too were facing trials. I think of our youngest, uh, she was uh, struggling to even uh, make it through the early years or early days of her life. I remember that. There was a trial. Now, for me, in elementary school... It's where I started, really started to think about things and understand what was happening. My parents moved a couple of times. I was, uh, my father was a pastor. We were missionaries in Alaska at the time. And uh, they would up and move to different places. Yeah, that's how I saw it. At the time, I didn't uh, give God too much credit for it. At that moment, I just saw them moving, you know. And I was in school, and that created an issue for me because now I had to adapt to a new 
uh, surrounding a new group of people, it was for me very difficult. It was a trial. I thought it would get better when I went to high school. But in high school, in my senior year, just going into my senior year, my parents moved again. And uh, not only did I struggle at that point with a new environment, but also with a new school's curriculum, which left me struggling to keep up. I don't know, in different parts of the world, I guess you're dumber. And uh, that's where I was. I'd never uh, heard of some of the stuff that they were talking about. I struggled to keep up. I ultimately was not fitting in with the rest of the class, and it was a struggle. But I thought, when I get to college, it'll be better. And that's when a new kind of pressure hit me not only in the fact that the workload was way more difficult than I had anticipated, but anxiety began to ramp up into me as I began to wonder, okay, what is next? Where am I going? What do you have for me, God? Uh, Maybe when I get a career. When I hit that career, all this will be behind me and I will have smooth sailing. But then... I became a truck driver, of all things. And uh, there were one or two girls that caught my eye along the way. One or two, not not a whole lot. And, uh, you know, I was checking them out, and I was saying, would this be a good person uh, that I could uh, take this relationship farther with? Perhaps we'll even get married. My heart is drawn to them. And uh, each of them, in their own time, unceremoniously dumped me. That was a struggle. It wasn't enjoyable. There's a lot of pain that accompanied it. They were anxious and trying times. And then finally, I meet Karen, who for reasons yet to be determined found out that in me there was something likable. And I'm a mess, believe me when I tell you. Well, I don't have to tell you. You you know that. And amazingly, on a, a bad moment in time for her, she said yes. She would marry me. And that was, this year will be 39 years of that. Whoa. I thought, now we've got this. Karen's a strong woman. She'll be able to help me with these trials. We're going to do this together. We think so much alike. And boy, was I ever proven wrong. I don't have to tell you how challenging that you are for your spouse to live with. And if you're in question about it, simply ask them, and they will share it with you. And so it goes on. We think that, uh, you know what, now we're married, everything will be fine, but then it's not. So, you know what, we'll add something to it. We're going to have kids. (laughs) It'll get easier for sure, only to find out that they are dirty, rotten sinners, (laughs) just like me. I like to tell them, you take me to places I would never have been. And it was true. And then we hold on to hope that, well, when the nest is empty, everything will change. The trials will lessen. But you know what? Nothing diminishes except your health. 
or you're kicked aside from the job that you've had, you've been so loyal to, for someone far younger, more affordable. Trial. All right, retirement's coming. Finally end that cycle of trials. But there we find a very astonishing companion called loneliness. I sit with lonely people. If you think for a minute that in retirement, everything's going to go away and you're going to be fine, you couldn't... (laughs) It don't happen that way. You might be busier than you've ever been, perhaps. Maybe you're not struggling with loneliness, but you can be around people and be lonely, believe me. You can be around others who are very busy and somehow they don't want you to get involved with the stuff that uh, you were trained to do and you think uh, that you know better. And so you get shoved aside. It can happen. And for some of you, it has. Yeah, James is reminding us with the word when that trials will always accompany us from birth until we are with the Lord. It never ends. And right now, where we sit, we are in the middle of it. We're in it. Some of us may be a little closer to one end than the other, but we're in it. These trials, he says, will come in various ways. It's the idea of being multicolored, he says, with different shades of color, meaning that they are not the same. Your trial may not at all look like mine, but you'll have them. And then James tells us about these trials, something else that's very important. He says they come suddenly. That's what is meant by the word meet. When you meet the trial. The word here actually alludes to something which unexpectedly falls into our path. The trying predicament we face will often come suddenly without notice. Now picture yourself walking to your car this morning... And as you go to unlock the door, you look up, and there stands a grizzly bear right in front of you. Whoa. Where did that come from? With trials, you don't see them coming. And bam, they're there in an instant. That's the nature of them. In a sense, and from that perspective, I guess, They should not come as a surprise to us. In fact, that's what Peter tells us. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so I think what James wants us to do is to prepare ourselves or arm ourselves with this reality. Perhaps even to come to a place where we expect the difficult times that are to come might come any, any moment. 
even today. They could be here. So in this first little verse, James is telling us that we are to adopt a proper perspective. We are to think of trials with a contented attitude whereby we trust God's purposes, realizing that trials are going to happen and that they will most likely pop up at a time when you least expect it. Uh, So expect it. But secondly, he goes on to give us the reason or the rationale behind why he tells us to consider it joy or pure joy. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now in verse 3, if verse 3 begins to answer the why behind the commandment, uh, the command to be joyful in the face of trials, that's what it's about. It wants you to know why we're doing it. And he starts with this little phrase that says, for you know, and he puts that in there, uh, I think, to motivate us a bit. Again, this motivation is not based upon that which we feel, but that which we uh, know what is in our mind, that our mind can conceive of and to think about. It's the stuff we have come to know and believe because our feelings are much too fickle. I can't trust them and neither can you. I don't feel like doing the stuff I ought to be doing. I didn't want to be here this morning. Don't tell everyone, but that's how I felt sometimes this week as I was preparing. All kinds of things I don't want to do. I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like taking the trash out. But I better. Something I ought to do. But the things that we know to be true, well, now that's different. They have substance. So what is it that we know to be true? When it comes to the tough times that we will face, well, Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that this light and momentary uh, momentary affliction that we are encountering is actually preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We know that not only are God's purposes good for God, but they work together for our good as well, both now and for eternity. But what does James tell us in this passage that we know? He says, we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We know that one's faith, he says, must be tested. Now, when James speaks of testing, he's talking about proving it to be genuine. Now, God had this thing of doing that all through the Old Testament as you look, uh, look at it. And I think that his readers, uh, James, the readers that, uh, who were reading his letter, understood that as well. God tested Abraham when he told him to offer his son Isaac on the altar. 
Do you believe me or not? You'll recall that God allowed Satan to test Job. A whole book given to that. He tested the children of Israel in the wilderness. And Moses reminds him of that. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It's part of his purposes. He brings testings and trials into our life. And he uses those trials to prove that we are genuinely his. Are you going to trust me now? You're going to let me go. In this sense, God is standing behind every test that we face. And those trials do not escape his purposes. They are part of his sovereign plan for us. And I think Frances Havergal understood that well. When she penned these words, every joy or trial falleth from where? From above. Traced upon our dial by who? The son of love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. And those who trust him wholly, find him wholly what? True. Now, the faith that he's speaking of in our verse there is saving faith. Those who are possessors of saving faith have entrusted themselves to Christ and to Christ alone, resting not on themselves, but on God's grace alone for salvation. He's not interested in knowing what your attendance record is at Grace Church. And I can tell you, for those of you who are measuring 2023, you have perfect attendance. But he doesn't care about that. Nor does he is much interested in whether or not you beat your dog. Though, if you do, Karen will get you. He is not talking about whether you curse when you pinch your finger in the door. No. Being a true Christian, a true follower of Christ, is about entrusting your whole self to him for salvation. That's what it is. So the Christian is going to have his faith tested. And these essential tests come our way to prove our faith, but they also have an outcome in mind. Right there it says, trials lead to steadfastness. Now, steadfastness carries the idea of patient endurance. It's not a passive thing in nature. As one commentator describes, it's clinging to the truth within any situation. It's engaged waiting on the Lord. God is using these trials to produce in us staying power. And with each trial, we are made stronger. 
And that's why they keep coming. And they're not going to go away. Get used to it. And James then says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, don't run from trials. Don't try to avoid them or make them go away. Pretend they don't exist. In divorce care, we encourage people to what? Sit in them. Sit in it. We can acknowledge while we're sitting in it that it indeed is unpleasant as a little bird found it to be. But we receive them as part of God's purpose for us. Is that not what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew tells us he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. I feel it. I anguish. It's miserable. And he faced it. In his perfect humanness, he agonizes just like we do. And yet he accepts it as the plan of God for him. So bring it on. Bring it on. Why? The last little piece of that verse tells us why. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The expression completeness is pointing to maturity. Spiritual maturity is what God has in mind for his children. We will never attain to that maturity without the trials and testings that we experience on this earth. The final stage of spiritual maturity is actually perfection. But we will not get that perfection until we receive our glorified bodies and are with him. And it's coming. It's coming. You see this having to blow my nose and wipe my tears away? I'm told it won't be there, Bob. It'll be something. Certainly be different than what I've experienced here on earth. There you have it. Want to respond well to trials that life brings? Well, you need to adopt a proper perspective that thinks of our trials as joy and understand their essential, crucial role in our lives, making us more like who? Jesus. A group of folks as large as this, there's no doubt many of you are encountering difficulties things that you are suffering with. 
There may be a handful of you here this morning who are saying, you know what, I hear you, but you know, things are going pretty good for me. The only thing I would say to you, brother in Christ or sister in Christ, is wait five minutes. It's coming. Because God wants to change us. You may have been facing this year broken relationships with someone close to you. That once very tight bond has been rent apart. Perhaps you've experienced the agonizing pain and turmoil which accompanies the death of a dear loved one. Perhaps you have felt the strain and challenge of losing your job. Maybe it's just the financial climate we find ourselves in today. Boy, it's hard to make ends meet for some of us. Maybe it's a health diagnosis that you or your loved one has received that has caused you to become overwhelmed with worry, stress, debilitating anxiety. And now I speak to you, dear caregivers. In some ways, I will tell you, it's worse for you. It's difficult. I know wherein of I speak. Having myself been diagnosed with blood cancer some time ago, which is simply just in remission. But it's always there. And every blood test, which is every six weeks, we look to see where she is. I don't anguish with that in the way that my wife does. It's different. But I've got good news for you. If I could see my paper, I would tell you what it is. (laughs) The Lord would have us know that the trials we face are crucial to move us to complete maturity. They're important. And so until that day, when we are face to face with him, You know what we do? We keep on keeping on. That's what we do. The James will go on to say in the last chapter, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, 
or stood the test rather, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Isn't that beautiful? Hang in there. Keep on keeping on. It is tough and it stinks. Little bird will tell you. But hang in there. Now for me, my refrain that God gave me uh, back in 2000, whenever, 18, 19, whenever it was, I got my diagnosis. He gave me this. All is well. All is well. Now, I want you to know what I mean by that. I think it captures everything that we have been talking about this morning. All is well. Kathy, you and I say to each other, all is well. My body is in decline. Uh, News for you, so is yours. You just may not know it. But you are dying, and I am dying. And we are one day closer to being with Christ. Is all well? Can you sing that refrain with me? It doesn't mean that you like the difficult trials that we are enduring, but there's a sense, hear me, in which you wouldn't trade it for the world. Am I right, Kathy? You wouldn't trade it for the world because it is the process that God has purposed for us to become more like his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, I won't trade it for the world. Change me, God. Change me. Make me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got a long ways to go. And he says, I know, Tim, so you got more trials coming. Don't think that this was the last one. Coming back from Virginia, Karen and I were saying, wow, things are going smooth. We made it. We made it to Pennsylvania. Now my, my transmission had warned me. I'm not happy. It was whining. I said, oh, this is interesting. I haven't heard that sound in a while, if ever. But when we saw that welcome to Pennsylvania sign, we said we're home free. And in an instant, it went woo. And we were over on the side of the road, and I remember saying to Karen, oh, my goodness, where are we? And I was going fast enough to where I rolled up a hill off an exit. The exit was right there, and then rolled right on down into a parking lot, having no idea where I was. And we said, all is well. Oh, it could have been worse. And there we sat. What do you want to do now? Don't know. What do you have, God? Suddenly a woman popped in my mind I haven't seen for years, who I thought lived out that way. Karen looked her up and found her number, and we gave her a call. And she said, oh, sure, I don't live too far from here. I'll come and get you guys. All is well. 
We spent the most wonderful weekend with her. Well, overnight, sorry. And then I called my son. And I said, is all well with you, son? Yeah. How about now? Would you come and get me? <laughs> and he said to me, all is well. Because while my daughter is playing soccer, there's all kinds of people from the family who are going to be present that day to help out Kara. I'll come and get you. All is well. We drove home. And I remember, I remember my good friend Bill said to me, who's uh, Daniel's father-in-law, hey, listen, in the future, don't, don't necessarily call Dan. Call me, I'll come and get you. I knew he'd come and get me. He would. He'd do anything. What a wonderful guy. But having Dan, I was sitting there talking to him all the way home. And all was well. Trials, essential. They form us, they shape us, and they're still common. But all is well. Horatio Spafford wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for what? For my soul. And because of that, we sing, all is well, all is well with my soul. Shall we sing it, Nate? Come on up and uh, bring your group and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your many blessings to us. They come to us in so many ways. And in a sense today, our trials are a blessing from you intended to make us what we otherwise would never be. Humble us with them, teach us and grow us. For your glory we pray, amen.